The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I'm your host, Kelly Cable. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the enthusiastic support I've received from friends, family, and comrades with only that first introductory episode. To create something like this is a rather scary venture. Even with only one episode released so far, I've already put far more work into this podcast than I thought it would take, so I welcome and thank you for your encouragement. In these next few episodes, we will introduce the major players and institutions that surrounded the Minneapolis Teamsters in 1934. Rather than telling a 30-year chronological story of these characters, I have decided to devote single episodes to each. What is important for us to understand is their character and their roles in society. Because for as complex as the story of 1934 is, the people and institutions involved play true to their character. Thus, the better we understand their individual histories, the better we can understand their six months of negotiations and clashes. We start with their story's antagonist, the Citizens' Alliance, the united front of Minneapolis capitalists who crushed the city's working-class movements for over three decades prior to 1934. In Episode 3, we turn to the Farmer Labor Party, Minnesota's unique political formation that was not only the most successful third party in United States history, but was created specifically to unite the rank-and-file against the capitalists. Specifically crucial is Farmer Labor Governor Floyd B. Olson, elected in 1930, who represented the state as a major mediator in the 1934 strike. Whether he is a protagonist or an antagonist will be for you to decide. Lastly, we will discuss the history of the socialist movement as best as we can in 30 minutes through the eyes of Vincent Ray Dunn and Carl Skoglund, two of the principal Trotskyist strike leaders. Once we have set up the Citizens' Alliance, the Farmer Labor Party, Governor Floyd B. Olson, and the Trotskyists, we can then turn our eyes to the small and scrappy Teamsters General Drivers Union Local 574. When the Teamsters struck in 1934, they were combating decades of defeat and demoralization at the hands of the city's bosses and political establishment. Minneapolis was ruled by a united front of mills, banks, retailers, machine shops, and the rest of the capitalist class. Employers set aside their competitive interests to break strikes, infiltrate unions, and manage the state's and city's affairs. Their mission was to make Minneapolis an open shop city, in which no unions had the power to collectively bargain for all the shop's workers. Indeed, the Citizens' Alliance was a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, political and economic rule by bosses, money, and capital. The Citizens' Alliance was thus a union against unions. This episode will provide a series of snapshots that displays the ruthless strategies and tactics that the Citizens' Alliance deployed to accomplish their tasks, many of which we will see during the course of the Teamsters' strike. The wealth of Minneapolis was built upon the region's prairies, forests, mountains, and most immediately, the Mississippi River. Using the water power of St. Anthony Falls and Minnehaha Creek, the mills of Pillsbury and Washburn Crosby transformed this provincial town into the weed capital of the world by the early 1900s. 
But in addition to the grain harvested from the prairies, timber and iron from Minnesota's northern reaches was shipped to Minneapolis's rail hubs, where James J. Hill had built his empire. Minneapolis thus collected and distributed the resources of the northern plains and forests, and in turn, constructed industries to serve those same regions. It was a city of industry, commerce, and transportation. As for its population, Minneapolis and Minnesota was divided by class and ethnicity, in part creations of the development of capitalism within the state. During the Civil War, Minnesota had waged the U.S.-Dakota War, which resulted in the ousting of the land's Native American population from the state's most agriculturally fertile regions. Following the forced removal of the indigenous peoples, the land was open to farmers, many of whom were immigrants. From the late 1800s to the early 1900s, over a quarter of Minnesotans were foreign-born, mostly Norwegian, Swedish, and German. This foreign-born and foreign-language-speaking population composed not only Minnesota's farmer class, but Minneapolis's working class. The city's working class composition contrasted with the city's and state's ruling class, the business owners and politicians, many of whom were native-born New Englanders who arrived prior to the Scandinavian and German immigrants. In a journalist's words, the city is a split personality. And while the bulk of Minnesotans were farmers, we will mostly set them aside until the next episode as we follow the battles between capital and labor within Minneapolis and St. Paul. One of the first major strikes to hit Minneapolis was at Thomas Lowry's Minneapolis Street Railway Company. Lowry desired to expand a streetcar network, but needed capital investment. So to convince investors that his business was profitable, he cut his workers' wages. The drivers immediately struck. But knowing he had the support of the Minneapolis business community, Lowry refused to negotiate with the union. To break the strike, Lowry hired special police, but when they arrived via streetcar, a large crowd of strikers managed to turn them back. Union workers petitioned the Chamber of Commerce to urge Lowry to negotiate, and the Chamber actually agreed, but Lowry still refused. With the special police stationed aboard the streetcars, violence broke out as strikers mobbed the railways and shut down Lowry's business. The mayor, on Lowry's behalf, increased police presence and ordered arrests. Those apprehended received fines from the courts. Even strikers who pled with replacement workers to not scab were arrested. This violent and armed response caused the strike to disintegrate. Lowry had smashed the union, but events had shown just how vulnerable Minneapolis business was to militant unionism. That the Chamber of Commerce failed to back Lowry needed to be rectified. And this needed to happen quickly because trade unionism was surging across the country. The American Federation of Labor, the country's leading alliance of craft unions, grew from 278,000 members in 1898 to 1.6 million in 1904. In 1901, unions across the country waged over 2,000 strikes, over two-thirds of them at least partially successful. But the successes of the labor movement took time to reach Minneapolis. Before 1900, fewer than three strikes were declared per year, but once union membership within the city rose to 28,000 workers, the number of strikes climbed to 11 in 1900 and to 24 in 1902. The Minnesota State Federation of Labor grew more militant. Its 1901 platform called for, quote, the collective ownership by the people of all means of production and distribution when business monopoly became a menace to the best interests of the people, end quote. Capitalists feared this rhetoric and now saw the need to undermine unionism. 
The direct origins of the Minneapolis Citizens Alliance was a response to the 1901 machinist strike. In the previous year, Chicago machinists launched a strike that produced the Murray Hill Agreement, in which the employers recognized the union and its right to collectively bargain, as well as a nine-hour workday. However, following disputes over wages and working conditions, the International Association of Machinists, the IAM, declared a national strike of 50,000 workers, including 365 in Minneapolis. To Minneapolis foundry owner Albert W. Strong, this is all quite a surprise. Albert Strong, who has the dubious honor of being president of the Citizens Alliance during the 34 Teamster strike, was one of its charter members. In an interview with Charles Rumford Walker in 1937, Strong declared that upon the 1901 strike, he had, quote, hardly heard of a labor union at that time. Born in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin in 1872, Strong graduated from Minneapolis Central High School in 1890. He worked in a bag factory after graduation and was promoted to factory superintendent. He had a strong desire to be his own boss, but had no money. So he made use of his network, finding a friend that lent him $32,000 in 1898 with no security beyond a signature. With the money, he constructed a foundry dedicated to the manufacture of farming equipment. Strong related to Walker that, One day, a man whom he had never seen before came into his office and handed him a document, which stipulated that no man could work in his plant unless he had belonged to the union. The man said, My name is Van Leer, and I am president of the Machinist Union. Van Leer told Strong that unless he signed the document, the factory would be on strike the next morning. Strong told him then, quote, My plant will go on strike because under no circumstances will I ever sign that document, end quote. When Strong met with his workers, he said that he received no grievances concerning wages or working hours, but that they were committed to unionizing. Although Strong apparently didn't know what a union was, he instinctively knew that a union would challenge his authority. He knew that workers as individuals could be easily dealt with, but workers as a collective force, as a union, were far more dangerous. Not only were Strong's profits on the line, but control of the factory itself could be jeopardized with one eye on his financial accounts and another eye looking toward the future should the workers win, Strong and his fellow manufacturers would absolutely never recognize a union in their factories. To fend off the strike, Strong, along with Otis Briggs and Owen Kinnard, both of whom operated at the national level against the machinist strike, united their competing firms in a trade association, the Twin City Association of Employers of Machinists. Fifty businesses joined within a week. Like Thomas Lowry in the streetcar strike, they refused to recognize or even meet with the union. As the Chicago and national strikes failed, Local 91 lost their leverage, especially once they ran out of financial resources needed to support the striking workers. The strike collapsed after a month. Although the union won recognition in some of the small shops, the business union of foundry owners kept total control of their factories. Employers, especially Albert Strong, had learned that, quote, an organized, unified, and ruthless business community could destroy the American labor movement. With an increasing number of strikes, more employers considered the need to unify. In 1902, Dreyage truckers struck with the backing of the newly established Minneapolis Trades and Labor Council. As the council called for a boycott against any business that employed non-union truckers, the employers feared that truckers had the ability to shut down the city. Because every industry in the city depended upon truckers transporting their goods, they needed to keep this sector under control. 
To do so, the bosses deployed an important tool in their war on labor, the court injunction. By appealing to sympathetic judges, employers could use the legal system to order strikers to stand down. When backed by police force, that is, when the state enforced capital relations, a court injunction was frequently enough to break the strike. And thus, the employers, with the help of the government, broke another strike. With this, employers soon realized that there was a need to not only better combat the unions, but to prevent unions from forming altogether. In addition to the machine shop owners, other business leaders, including a former district court judge and even a future Minneapolis mayor, proposed the Citizens Alliance in 1903. It was based in the winning principles and strategies formed during the machinist strike. Its constitution stated four purposes, to prevent disturbances to so-called industrial peace, to discourage strikes, lockouts, and unfair demands, to secure freedom of contract between employee and employer, and finally, to uphold the principle of the open shop. This is going to get a bit technical, but I want to elaborate on what these principles meant because they constitute the capitalist or bourgeois ideology both then and now. You will see close parallels to the arguments behind the anti-worker right-to-work laws that have spread across the country in the language of the Citizens' Alliance in 1903. The mission of the Citizens' Alliance, or CA, was to do exactly what Albert Strong had managed to do, smash unions, establish the open shop, and keep control of their enterprises. In principle, an open shop means that it is the choice of a worker whether or not to join the union. It also means that a union cannot assert itself as the sole representative of a shop's workers in collective bargaining negotiations. While this technically meant that some employees couldn't bargain through a recognized union, when the CA called for an open shop, what they really called for was no union whatsoever. The Citizens Alliance justified their policy through an ideological position that made cynical use of the language of individual rights in order to undermine worker power. The employers held that if a union declared a strike, individuals had the quote-unquote right to remain at work or to be hired as replacement workers, also called scabs. This right-to-work position held that if a union interfered with workers who refused to join the strike or interfered with the workers that replaced them, the union was violating the individual liberty of that worker. The CA claimed unions also violated the boss's right to his property. They considered picketing or boycotting to be immoral, antisocial, and unchristian. They even invoked the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If unions, the collective organization of workers, violated an employee's right to work and an employer's right to manage his business, then unions, according to the CA, were simply, quote-unquote, opposers of individual freedom. Indeed, the Citizens' Alliance argued that employment was a contract between two equal and free individuals, employer and employee. It followed then that the state's duty, the state being the police, courts, bureaucracy, etc., it was the state's duty to uphold these rights by the enforcement of law and order. Because the CA believed that unions interfered with this contract, it was the state's obligation, therefore, to enforce these capitalist relations, whether by law or by force. However, and here is the Marxist critique, these arguments mask the central antagonism at the heart of society that I introduced in the last episode, the antagonism between capital and labor, between bosses and workers, between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. 
The workers in the mills, banks, and factories were not equal with the bosses. They were at opposite ends of a hierarchy of power. The owner of the means of production, such as Strong, controlled his workers' wages, conditions, and hours. The owners had the arbitrary power to hire and fire, to extend working hours, and to cut wages. The workers had no power, and therefore had no individual rights of their own. Individuals had a right to be a scab or to be a replacement worker, but they had no right to steady employment, regular and limited working hours, or even a minimum wage. Sure, there was a contract signed between employee and employer, but if that worker did not submit to the boss, they would be kicked to the curb and left to starve. Indeed, capitalists even forced workers to sign yellow dog contracts, in which refusing to join a union was a condition of employment. Now I'm aware I'm laying on the argument thick here, but my point is that we need to see through the cheap rhetoric of the bosses. As the rest of the episode shows, the employers had no problem with violating the individual liberties of the workers when it suited them by using blacklists, police forces, and the legal system to maintain their power. They also fought in the state legislature to preserve their power and to prevent workers' protections. As much as CA members may have even believed their own propaganda, their actions and rhetoric were not to ensure freedom, but to ensure profits. Their four-point mission to promote industrial peace and prosperity, to discourage strikes, lockouts, and unfair demands, to secure for employer and employee freedom of contract, and finally the open shop, were clearly pro-capital and anti-labor. Their entire mission was to prevent the organization that gave workers their power, the unions. And note also their very name. The Citizens' Alliance clearly did not represent all of the city's residents. Instead, they represented a minority class of the city's residents and suppressed the city's majority class, the workers. But not only did the Citizens' Alliance have to deal with the central contradiction between boss and worker, they had to manage another major contradiction. The bosses were all each other's competitors. While they all shared ideological commitments to anti-unionism and the open shop, they needed to make sure no firm broke ranks for individual advantage. The CA therefore developed a system of carrots and sticks to reinforce the alliance. Carrots included support from the rest of the business community in conflicts with labor, such as refusing to hire blacklisted agitators, fending off of legal and legislative challenges to their collective dominance, forming private armies, and paying into the business equivalent of a strike relief fund. The CA was further united as a social clique of city elites with country clubs, private schools, and philanthropic organizations. One example of a carrot at work was seen in the 1905 typographer's strike. The CA urged city businesses to slow down their requests so that the printers could keep up with demand and mitigate their financial damage. The stick, on the other hand, was used against any company that recognized or negotiated with a labor union in the midst of a dispute. By aligning with the city's banks, the CA could also ask bankers to deny credit to any traders to the cause. The CA could also call for a boycott from the rest of the business community. Journalist Charles Walker noted the irony that for all of the freedom talk that came out of the CA, that they denied other businesses the freedom to recognize a union if it was in the firm's interest was rather hypocritical. As he wrote, quote, The alliance is as ruthless and autocratic as a court of inquisition against heretics fallen from grace. By managing the competitive logic of capitalism, the Citizens' Alliance created and enforced a united front to capital against labor. 
The CA was in effect the trade association that crossed industrial lines and tolerated no scabs in its class. A union against unions. The alliance's first major test was defending the heart of Minneapolis capitalism, the mills. In September 1903, 1,800 mill workers walked off the job, shutting down 14 of the city's 17 mills. They demanded the bosses reduce their 12-hour workday to an 8-hour workday, and with no reduction in pay. The mill owners refused, of course, and buying job advertisements throughout the region's newspapers, they hired a mass of replacement workers from across the state, even offering to pay expenses for travel, room, and board, providing up to 2,100 meals per day. As the union became more militant, the bosses built a protected stockade, even turning an old mill into a cafeteria and sleeping quarters for the replacement workers. Within a month, the number of operating mills increased from 3 to 12. Union members voted to keep up the strike, but by mid-October, most strikers had returned to work, defeated, and the union was crushed. Throughout the 1910s, the mills sought to calm labor unrest and organize profit sharing, group insurance, and other programs that would more strongly tie employees to their bosses. With these sorts of methods, the Washburn-Crosby mill prevented a union in its shop until 1936, a full 33 years. The Alliance's victory in the mills convinced many other Minneapolis businesses to join its forces, 200 within the first year. It listed among its membership banks, mills, building contractors, grocers, and a host of manufacturers. It was remarkably successful. Between 1905 and 1914, workers founded only four new unions in Minneapolis. As the Citizens' Alliance gained economic control over Minneapolis, they recognized the need for political control, especially at the state level, and began integrating rural employers into their program. In 1908, they formed the Minnesota Employers Association, MEA. At the state legislature, the MEA successfully lobbied against the eight-hour workday, the weekend, and workplace safety conditions. They scored a major victory against workers by preventing the passage of workers' comp, declaring such a policy to be too socialist. Beyond playing defense in the state legislature, the CA and MEA went on the offensive and fought for anti-boycott and anti-picket legislation. Using their mystifying language once again, the employers claimed that boycotts and pickets, quote, make it impossible for an employer to enjoy his property, his personal rights, and his freedom, end quote. The key innovation in capital's war on labor in the city was, oddly, the vocational school. The CA's policy of firing agitators, even if they were skilled workers, limited their own labor pools. With their self-inflicted labor shortage, the CA helped high schools establish shop classes. Unions recognized that these classes were to train replacement workers and sought to influence the curriculum by creating quote-unquote unbiased labor history classes. But one Minneapolis millionaire, the miller and banker William Hood Dunwoody, bequeathed his fortune to found what would become the Dunwoody College of Technology. Between 1914 and 1927, Dunwoody College trained 35,000 students. While technical training certainly helped individual workers, its anti-union indoctrination bore fruit in 1920 when the college supplied semi-trained students to replace mechanics during a strike. The school, historian William Milliken writes, was, quote, one of the primary reasons that Minneapolis was the U.S.'s most open shop city. But as the Citizens' Alliance slept on its victories, labor and left-wing movements grew in Minneapolis and across Minnesota. Machinists Local 91, the union that had struck against Albert Strong in 1902, now fighting for higher wages, once again struck. 
Minneapolis Steel and Machinery had cited material shortages as the reason for a mass layoff of its workers. But the company's hiring ads discovered in Iowa revealed that the layoff was only an attempt to break the union. Local 91 demanded recognition, and of course, the bosses refused. The company's vice president tied the simple demand for union recognition to, quote, these radical elements are socialists opposed to every property right who seek to control industry and to divide up and redistribute the property or wealth of the country. The employers thus argued that the union may be fighting for only higher wages now, but they would demand far more in the future should they win. Recognizing the power of the enemy, this craft union of machinists attempted to organize all the plant's workers into an industrial union, more on which in episode 4. However, the company hired replacement workers, armed guards, blacklisted the strikers, and managed to continue production unabated, and within a month, the CA broke the strike. But this was only the beginning. Working class and farmer revolts led by radicals broke out across the state in 1916. The CA and its statewide allies now had to wage battles against the socialists and syndicalists, whom we will cover in detail in episode 4. The Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, led major strikes of thousands of miners and lumberjacks in the Mesabi Iron Range. Spies infiltrated the IWW as hundreds of police waged a so-called reign of terror. But a larger threat to the bosses emerged on the other side of the state border. The Nonpartisan League had won political control of North Dakota. The Nonpartisan League, or NPL, agitated for state control of industry and the establishment of a state bank. Having won over the farmers in North Dakota, the NPL hoped to expand their victory into the larger and relatively more industrial Minnesota, and we'll cover this in detail next time. Locally, in Minneapolis, Thomas Van Leer, the man who demanded union recognition from Albert Strong back in 1901 and thus provoked the formation of the Citizens Alliance in the first place, now ran for mayor as member of the Socialist Party. Receiving 33,000 votes, Van Leer won on a platform that called for workers to, quote, overthrow the power of capitalism, abolish industrial classes in society, terminate forever the class struggle by securing the collective ownership and democratic management of the means of production and distribution. The Citizens Alliance fears of workers' movements seem to be coming true due to the combined efforts of the IWW, Nonpartisan League, and Socialist Party. But the employers lucked out, however. The United States entered World War I. During the course of the war, Minnesota was ruled by the Commission of Public Safety. Its purpose was to foster national patriotism, keep up industrial production for the war, and check anyone who would interfere in these efforts. Thus, the state, even more clearly than before, aligned itself with capital interests against the workers. While the NPL tried to forge a middle ground, the IWW and the Socialist Party considered the war to not be in the interests of the working class. Instead, they urged workers to realize that it was a war between competing capitalist states. For this opinion and their disruptions to industrial peace, this commission, in many ways identical with the Citizens' Alliance, sharing both ideological commitments and actual members, expanded the northern reign of terror. The commission violently suppressed capital's enemies, established a secret spy service, arrested socialists without warrants, deported agitators, and shut down the radical presses. Van Leer lost re-election, the Wobblies were neutralized, and NPL organizers, including gubernatorial candidate Charles Lindbergh Sr., were jailed or attacked. One NPL speaker was even tarred and feathered. Because its political base was in North Dakota, 
The NPL held on to fight another day, but the national patriotism instilled by the war had partially eroded the connections that radicals had forged with the state's working class. But worker unrest exploded during the war and after the war, even in defeat. For example, in the midst of the war, Lowry's Twin City Rapid Transit Company once again faced a strike in 1917. Now headed by Thomas Lowry's son, Horace Lowry used the same tactics as his father in the 1889 strike. He did not recognize the union, he refused to meet union workers' demands for higher wages and improved working conditions, and instead fired them. Lowry offered non-union and replacement workers higher wages to forestall their radicalization. But his stubborn denial to compromise with his workers only encouraged further action. The unrest had begun with few workers affiliated with the union. Now, 400 employees attended a union meeting. As usual, tensions escalated, but the Citizens' Alliance intervened with a new tactic, a private army called the Civilians' Auxiliary, deputized by the Hennepin County Sheriff. Business and state were now one and the same. When the streetcar workers struck on October 6, 1917, the 600-member private army was well-organized, drawing up a war map of Minneapolis to coordinate citywide strike-breaking actions. Similar to the 1889 strike, the strikebreakers were stationed on the cars to prevent Unionists from boarding. Facing rifles, the strikers were left with little leverage. But the situation was entirely different across the river in St. Paul, as mobs rioted downtown and shut down the system. Hennepin County stationed guards on the bridges to prevent the riot from spreading back into Minneapolis, while Governor Burnquist called in troops from Fort Snelling to quell the unrest. The Minnesota Commission of Public Safety intervened, ordering all strike actions to stop, and in special hearings to resolve the dispute, ruled in favor of Lowry. The commission even ordered workers to cease all discussions of unionization on company property, citing it was workers' patriotic duty to follow its commands. This was insufficient to restore order, and within a month, angry mobs in St. Paul's Rice Park attacked streetcars, injuring 50 non-union car operators. In the War of St. Paul, up to 10,000 workers from across the cities engaged with thousands of cops, troops, and citizen auxiliaries made mostly businessmen. President Woodrow Wilson's administration now intervened and called for a return to the status quo, in which Lowry would hire union workers without discrimination at their previous wages. Employers accused Wilson's Mediation Commission of subversion, socialism, and likened them to Russian Bolsheviks, while the unions accused the bosses of supporting the Kaiser. The Wilson administration created a National War Labor Board that would enforce the rights of workers to organize in unions and collectively bargain. But unfortunately, in an agreement signed between the Minnesota State Federation of Labor and the Minnesota Employers Association, labor consigned itself to a weakened position and due to jurisdictional issues was unable to appeal to the labor board. The Lowry's won another battle. And while other Twin Cities unions made some use of this war labor board, its rulings were not strongly enforced and it did not survive long after the war. Even though World War I ended, the antagonism between capital and labor continued to escalate. Labor organizations such as Minneapolis Trades and Labor Assembly and the State Federation of Labor called for state and municipal ownership of streetcars and railways, utilities, and the banks. An NPL gubernatorial candidate, Henrik Shipstead, nearly bested the Republicans. Socialist Thomas Van Leer lost the mayor's election, but only by a small margin, and the labor movement continued to grow. There were over a million illegal strikes across the country in 1919, involving 
20% of the country's labor force, the largest strike wave in American history. The American Federation of Labor, which had 1.6 million workers in 1904, now had over 4 million workers in 1920. 90,000 AFL members worked in Minnesota, a 70% growth in two years. Minnesota now had 670 unions, 116 of them in Minneapolis, representing around 30,000 workers. Under threat, the Citizens Alliance waged a propaganda campaign, including an anti-radical preacher named Marion Shutter, who pitted the so-called menace of socialism against the establishment of private property and the rise of capital. To further propagandize, the CA also took over the Minneapolis Journal, set up proxy organizations, and mailed thousands of pamphlets and newspapers for free across the state. The Citizens Alliance also brought in its own base, including now the reluctant retailers, and even helped establish equivalents in St. Paul and Duluth. They suppressed another machinist strike in 1920. The ideological battle for the open shop concluded in 1924, when the Citizens Alliance violently broke a typographer's strike, the last vestige of a union shop in the city. Thus, while the labor movement exploded with membership and activity, and this was true across the world, the Citizens Alliance prevented the unions from taking hold in Minneapolis. There were unions in the city, but there were no union shops. The Alliance's mission was now to keep Minneapolis an open shop city. They mailed out thousands of bulletins to city residents every month. They established the Free Employment Bureau in 1919. Far from free, the CA itself could not only control the flow of workers, but also control who they employed, maintaining extensive records and blacklists. Between 1919 and 1929, the Bureau placed 36,000 non-unionist workers. The Citizens Alliance again moved to cement their control of the city and the state. With their national affiliates, such as the Chamber of Commerce, they fought off a bill in Congress introduced by a former labor senator that would limit the use of court injunctions by sympathetic judges. It failed in committee, whose majority stated without irony that to limit injunctions, quote, would be a denial of constitutional liberty and property without due process. No mention of due process for the worker was ever mentioned. Beyond mere law, the Citizens Alliance sought to create permanent bodies of law enforcement throughout the state, instead of only relying on their private armies. The Alliance had strong ties to the National Guard, including both leadership and members, but their deployment was limited, even more so if the governor was labor-friendly. To provide themselves with additional firepower, the CA waged a legislative battle to establish a state patrol. The labor movement recognized its purpose was not public safety, but to suppress strikes and public gatherings. Unions prevented the patrol's creation for nearly 10 years. When the Alliance managed to pass the legislation that created the state highway patrol, its jurisdiction was limited to the state's roads. It did win over public opinion when officers nabbed some bank robbers. That is, its use was to be a weapon against labor and radical farmers, but earned its legitimacy through token demonstrations of maintaining public safety. To supplement law enforcement, the CA also built upon the spy networks from World War I, and infiltrated the city's major unions. If a strike loomed, employers could stockpile materials or simply fire outed agitators. This infiltration in the 1920s was so thorough that according to Charles Walker, the attendees of a union meeting at one of the flour mills discovered that they were all spies. And finally, the CA destroyed one last union. Minneapolis police officers were convinced to vote for their own deunionization. To conclude, 
beginning with the streetcar strike of 1889, capitalists, business owners, and employers in the mills, banks, machine shops, construction, and transportation industries had waged victorious battle after victorious battle to suppress labor, eliminate radicalism, and maintain control of the city of Minneapolis and Minnesota. Albert Strong and his co-conspirators had developed an array of weapons to enforce their rule, court injunctions, pro-business legislation, special police, the National Guard, the Dunwoody College of Technology, temp agencies, newspapers, propagandistic pamphlets, and spy networks. They and their allies had taken control of state power in both the Minneapolis and Minnesota governments to enforce their rule. By firing agitators, hiring replacement workers, and refusing to negotiate with unions, the Citizens Alliance made Minneapolis one of the country's most open shop towns, in which capital ruled with little interference, all for the sake of profits. They were a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, an economy and government of the bosses, by the bosses, for the bosses. As effective as the Citizens Alliance was, the immense pressure that big business put on both farmers and workers produced a simmering tension. In the next episode, we will pick up the story of the North Dakota Nonpartisan League and the political organization to which it gave birth, the most successful third party in the history of the United States, the Minnesota Farmer Labor Party, and its enigmatic governor, Floyd B. Olson. Please join me next time on 1934 Mill City Revolt. This has been your host, Kelly Cable, and thank you for listening.